This podcast is powered by Pivotal Moments Media. Check out our mental wellness bundle on sale now. The bundle includes education on suicide prevention, learning to listen, and my mission matters. Exclusive content from U.S. Navy SEAL Mark Green and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life After the Military, a show completely focused on reversing the trend of veteran suicide, homelessness, and problematic transitions by helping veterans transition from military to civilian life and strengthening the mental fitness of our active duty military members, veterans, and their families. Our show is powered by Pivotal Moments Media, an organization on a mission to strengthen mental fitness worldwide for all. Go check them out at pivotalmomentsmedia.com to learn more. My name is Lee Elias, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Howie Cohen, and we are privileged to have our special guest, Army Lieutenant Colonel Retired Olivia Nunn, with us today. Olivia served for over 20 years in the U.S. Army, where she started as a chemical officer, then, halfway through her career, switched over to work in the public affairs and strategic communications field. Olivia currently works as a senior marketing manager for S2 Analytical Solutions and also owns her own communications consulting business, Olivia Nunn Communications. Additionally, she serves as the executive director for the Work Play Obsession All In Foundation, a nonprofit organization. Olivia, it truly is our pleasure to, pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to Life After the Military. Thank you so very much. And letting me come onto your show and share a little bit about myself. So thank you. Oh, thanks for being here. And again, just I know from talking with you before the show, we're going to have a great conversation today. Um, uh, again, you've done things like this before. And uh, for the listening audience, you're going to enjoy this one. But let's start where we always do, Olivia. Again, served in the Army for over 20 years. Share with your audience how you prepared and executed your transition out of the military into the private sector, what went well, what didn't go well, what would you change knowing what you know now? So I think I had a leg up compared to a lot. And the reason why I said that, my last job in the Army, the last three years, I served as a public affairs officer for an an organization called U.S. Army Soldier for Life. And the business of that organization was to assist soldiers in transitioning out. And I served on the strategic part of that organization. Layman's term, we were the matchmakers. We assisted the army in meeting the organizations outside of the military in meeting the soldiers where they're at. Everything from getting a job, education, health and resources. And at the same time, you know, soldiers wanting to meet those organizations. So I had access to all of those organizations. And at the same time, as a public affairs officer, I helped with the messaging, I did all of the social media, and I was also the podcast host. So I gained a lot of notoriety by doing that. There wasn't a place that I didn't go to because I did podcast shows, I gave presentations, I went all around the world literally doing that job. And I went to lots of events. There wasn't a place that I didn't go to that people would come up to me and they said, you're her, you're Colonel Nunn. And I had gained such a following on social media that it, that people knew who I was and knew so much about me because I shared so much about who I was on social media that people knew me and I didn't necessarily knew them. So I knew the game and I knew it intimately and I knew all the steps. I knew all the tips and tricks. So I knew how to apply those procedures as I was exiting the military. And the name of the game is go to TAP, which is Transition Assistance Program. And we say start 24 months out and it is go early and go often. And of course, 
I took that advice and I started that transition process just like how we preached. So I felt like I really knew what I was doing. But here's the thing that I struggled just like everybody else. Yes, I was a lieutenant colonel. Yes, I was a field grade officer. Yes, I knew all the tips and tricks. And I knew how to do that. But I struggled just like everybody else in the emotional part of the game, right? Which is the identity part of the game. Because just like everybody else, I wore that uniform for 20 years. My name, who I was, was wrapped up in the nation's cloth. And that is a hard thing to put away. That is a hard thing to to segregate yourself from when for so long you were, you know, lieutenant something, captain something, right? And to to separate yourself from that and to rebuild yourself from that. And then at the same time, as I was transitioning, I found myself going through a divorce. So there was two parts of me going through, you know, a life transition and a military transition. I was literally divorcing my personal life and my professional life all at the same time. I can see how that would be intense, for lack of a better word. Um, I do love that you brought up identity. We always say, Howie and I, that there's a few pillars here of transition, identity, community, and purpose, right? And and all three of those are put into question the, the day you transition, right? I also love that you said, you know, you follow your own advice. I think that that's, that's super important. I think a lot of people don't tend to do that, um, but you had a great education leading up to that. But Again, and how I'll throw it to you, the emotional stress was still there, right? It's almost, I don't want to say it's impossible to prepare for, right? But it, it almost knowing it's going to happen and not not denying it, I think is really important. Yeah. First of all, thanks for being so transparent about that, Olivia. Um, I know it's not always, even though I know you do talk about it, I know it's not always easy to talk about. Um Look, this is a really important topic for me uh, as, as I because I, I do a lot of personal study and research into, you know, the conscious mind, the self-conscious mind, um, how we establish our values, how we establish our identity. Why do you think it is uh, that you identified your identity so strongly with your time in uniform? You know, I think so much is that, you know, you you learn at an early stage of being part of a team, right? You are broken down to remove I, right? There is no I in team. Like you are taught to believe in the bigger part of the mission, right? It is so vital that you believe in the person to your front, to the back, to the left, and to the right. And you believe in that so much that, what is left is this uniform, this identity. And it's so easy to get caught up in all of the accolades that come with that uniform. And also, I think it's also the part of when you walk around with that uniform, people see this persona, this, oh, look at that soldier, look at what they believe that soldier to be. Um, you know, this soldier must be credible. This soldier must be a badass. This soldier must be worthwhile and worthy and all these incredible things and doors open for you um, in ways that Olivia Nunn can't open. 
And so when that uniform is no longer there and you're so used to doors being open when it's Lieutenant Colonel Nunn or Major Nunn or whatever that rank is, and that's no longer there, it's it's hard. And, and I think that is such, it's an ego in, in so many ways. And, and also I think the other part, it's family. Um, and I think the other part for me, it's as a woman, I spent 20 years in combat arms, you know, off majority of my career, I was often the only woman. And so I spent That's a whole nother dynamic right a there. Whole nother dynamic. I literally walked around with a chip on my shoulder and it was a way to protect myself. Right. Mm. I had to come to work many times every single day to prove my worth that I had the ability to sit at that table that I've earned my right to sit at the table purely because I was a woman right um because there was that belief that well you're a girl you you don't know what you're doing and I had to I had to prove myself every single day never mind the fact that I've been there every single day and I've been doing that job every single day and, you know, that feeds into that, that bravado, that belief of who you are. And when you step away from that, and I've taken that off, it, it's hard. Um, when I've now stepped into the civilian role of, I've spent 20 years of proving how much of a badass I am, because I, I've had to, and now I'm just Olivia Nunn. Well, you're not just Olivia Nunn. I mean, you 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 obviously had an incredibly successful military career, and the and the and I think you know this, and and I want the audience to know this that, you know, what you did in the military is nothing more than a preview of what you'll do after your life in the military if you can successfully trans make that transition. You bring up an this is a, it's a fascinating point that I don't think we've actually ever explored. Uh, well, maybe we did with your wife, Lee, when we did our first interview. Um, and Lee will, uh, will share, I'm sure, that you know his wife is is uh, was an Air Force medical officer, and she was actually our first podcast. Uh, she was our rehearsal. Um, but I don't, even though we've had a number of females on, I don't remember really going down this particular path. Do you, Lee? No, not listen. It, it, it's one of those things where it's not for us to talk about right olivia like like we can't assume the experience of a woman and that, right. that's why like i don't even almost know what questions to ask right i almost want to reverse the interview like what questions should we be asking for other women that are transitioning because because again it's not not our expertise right yeah um so maybe maybe that is the way to look at it i mean you, you said it how it's a whole nother dynamic you know uh i understand that i don't understand so what are the questions that we should be asking from a from a woman's perspective when transitioning or what other, again this is the question what questions should women be asking themselves when they transition right that that we might not know to ask um i think we as a male population need to be much more sensitive to what what women in our society go through what military spouses go through and what women in the military go through um, 
I, I am comfortable talking about this because look, I've, I've witnessed it, right? I've witnessed from when I was a second lieutenant up to when I left the military as a, as a colonel. Um, I, now, I did not experience nearly to the depth that you did, Olivia, but having been a combat support officer and a combat support soldier who served a better than half of his 27 years in the you know, combat arms environment to include special operations. Um, you know, when, if you're not one of the operators, if you're not one of the guys, then you are not one of the guys, right? Um, but that doesn't even go to the depth that if you're a female operating in that kind of an environment. Um, I think it's really unfortunate that, um, that that's the way it is. And I completely understand why you would have to build up these kinds of thoughts that would want you or, or drive you to identify so strongly with your time in uniform because that you had to do that to succeed. And so that's a, so that's a whole nother challenge, right? That's a whole nother challenge. That I think women who are transitioning out of the military face um, uh, as if you don't have enough on your plate, as a as a transitioning service member and as a mom with children, um, but but you know that that that's a that's a really interesting challenge, and uh, I, I appreciate you making all of us more sensitive to that, and I think we got to be more attuned to that. Um, so let me ask you this, Olivia: um, You had this challenge. How did you get through it? How did you kind of battle your way through it? Because I think that could be really. Um, instructive for all of our audience, but especially women in our audience who are going through what you went through? So I think, you know, I didn't recognize what I was dealing with. And that is what contributed to my mental health at the end. So, and I think in order for, for what I just said to make sense, I have to take your audience all the way back. And that started when I was a first lieutenant in my first deployment in 2003. I was assaulted. I was oh, physically geez. assaulted in my uh, in one of my operations. I was a convoy commander. I was in charge of securing Turkish fuel trucks and delivering them to various fuel depots along Route One. And you know, and this is you know this is a funny part, right? Everyone's like, "Well, you're a woman, and therefore because you're a woman, you didn't see." combat operations. I've had my share of, of ambushes, of IEDs, but because this was during 2003 and OIF-1, this was before the CAB was created. The CAB was created during OIF-2. And because most of my unit had already dispersed, there was no one that could go back and create, you know, all of the missions that I've already done. So I don't have a cab to say that these were the things that had happened in my mission. And so people are like, well, you're not a real soldier because you don't have any of these awards. To me, it doesn't really matter. The The part was I wasn't able to go back to, to put these in for the soldiers that worked for me. But nonetheless, I was assaulted on one of my missions by my platoon sergeant. I had a, a, an organization that was put together by multiple other organizations because I was in an aviation unit. And the platoon sergeant that was given to me um, assaulted me. He 
and I've shared this in other podcasts and I shared it on my soldier for life podcast. And at the end of the day, I, I did report it to my, to my chain of command. It took a long time for the investigation. The 15, six was botched a couple of times. And at the end of it, when it was all said and done, his, his chain of command said that I was conduct on becoming, I was an officer. Cause I emotionally lost my bearing. I'd cried uncontrollably because this NCO, he was five foot six over 230 pounds. Um, he, he was, he, he was huge compared to me. You know, he lifted me up by my, my vest. He wrenched my arm behind me. He had smashed my face. He threw me to the truck. Um, he, he did all kinds of things to me. And that was not the first physical altercation that he had with me. There was other times he had thrown me out of the truck before he had kicked me in my gut a few times. He had done other things that I never reported because all those times, you know, I had chalked it up to, I wasn't perfect enough as a leader. I had failed as a leader to, to control him, that there's somewhere in my ability to lead. And because I didn't do what was right, that I must be failing. And because the 15-6 said that I was conduct unbecoming, I must be a failure. Mm. At the end of the day, and because it took so long for the investigation, uh, and it came a month right before redeployment, I just wanted it over. So I just said, you know what? I just want to go home. I I'm... There's so many times I'm almost, I almost died on the on this deployment, with near ambushes, um, with so many IED blasts near and around me, um, you know, a couple daisy chains that you know went off a couple times that you know didn't go off. All of these, I just I just wanted to go home. That I said, you know what, forget it, and I actually repressed those memories. That I actually forgot about it. I, I think it was a way of my mind protecting me. There were many years that I completely forgot about it. I did see that NCO one time a few months after that deployment at a gym outside of the installation. I saw him on an off post gym and on a treadmill. I saw him. He didn't see me. I ran to the bathroom and threw up and I never saw him again. And I forgot about that incident and I just repress that memory. And I just learned to emotionally shut down where all I did was just basically suck it up and drive on where if things got hard or things got tough or men treated me in a certain way, I just emotionally just kind of shut my face down and just became more ice cold or more bitchy. Or the reverse happened, I got really wound up, really excited, and really just aggressive. Those are the two reactions that would happen from me. And I didn't understand that those two reactions were the way that I was dealing with my mental health. And that's how I was taking care of myself. That was a protection that I was doing. And I just dove into my work and worked really, really hard. I would work long hours and all in the name of trying to prove myself, trying to be the best officer. And I wanted to be a company commander. I wanted to be the best at the game. I wanted to be the best of everything because I was oftentimes the only woman in the combat arms. And 
And I didn't want to be a mom for the longest time because the name of the game was to be the best, to create a name and a reputation, which I did. And I achieved that. But what I didn't understand was that my mental health was taking a toll. And I didn't understand that until almost at the very end. And at the end of the game, 20 years later, it all fell apart. At the end of my game, as I was retiring, it all hit me. I'm retiring. My marriage was falling apart. My career was coming to an end. And everything that I ever repressed in my career, everything that happened, all the negative things that happened, all the things that I hid, all the things that I didn't deal with, everything that I just didn't want to deal with, everything that I shut away, that I didn't want to talk about all came back all at once and I had to deal with it. And that took me down a very, very dark path, which led me to contemplating and planning my suicide. So, so listen, let, if you're comfortable, let, let this be honest with you. This, in my opinion, is much more important conversation than any other questions we're going to ask other than the last one. So I'd li actually like to stay on this if you're okay with that, Olivia, and, and it's completely up to you. There is absolutely no pressure for you to talk about anything you're uncomfortable talking about. But I would like to, I, the, the next logical question for me to ask is, well, how did you deal with it? What did you do if you're comfortable talking about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been pretty open, but before we jump into it, to, to finish answering your question, I think, I didn't, to to answer that question of, for your listeners, I didn't do a good job in dealing with how did I deal with it as a woman in the military? You know, I thought I was dealing with it by just digging into my career. And in many ways, when you look back at it, people could say, well, Olivia, you, you did an amazing job. I did, but it came at the cost of my mental health. I did achieve, I broke glass ceilings. You know, now General Funk, he was the one that put me into command. I was the first woman to take command of a brigade HHT. You know, it that brigade HHT is typically given to a armor or infantry officer second time in command. And he gave that to me, which oh, that's awesome. Very wow. awesome to do, right? He believed in me. And I I took that command and I deployed that company and I, you know, deployed that to five fobs simultaneously into Iraq. You know, I did a lot of cool things and, you know, I, I was given an infantry platoon. I had to take that platoon and um, create a PST out of that, that platoon, right? That platoon didn't want a female commander. They were upset. They're like, what do you mean? We got to work with a woman, <laughs> you know, in the end, you know, they were at the end. I think the biggest compliment that I ever got from them is that, you know, ma'am, we were upset that we had to work with a woman, and but you proved us wrong. I would, I would go back into combat with you. Um, to me, I think that's the greatest compliment that I could prove to guys that women can do it. And I proved it to them. Well, and listen, women have been proving it for years now, um, going to ranger school, um, graduating, graduating with a ranger tab, um, going into combat assignments as an, as infantry officers um, or NCOs um, and working in combat arms units in a combat arms position. Um, and, and I'll tell you, you know, nothing pleases me more than to, to see that. Um, and, and listen, what, what, you, what you're describing here, Olivia, is, is 
so typical of what a lot of us um, did where we had mental health challenges throughout our careers. Look, mine were nothing like what you experienced. So I want to qualify that right off the bat. I did not experience anything to the depth of what you experienced. But like many, you know, we all have mental fitness, mental health challenges, um, some to, uh, it's just to different degrees and we respond to it differently and we handle it differently. Um, but you, what you, what you did is very consistent with what most of us do is that we just freaking bull our way through it. Right. Cause I'll guarantee it sounds to me that probably something you, you were unfortunately taught from that, that 15 six is there's no fucking use me talking to anybody about this. Cause nobody wants to hear what I have to say and they're not going to believe me anyway. So why would you, why in the world would you then seek out help from anybody else? Because nobody was, nobody was supporting you. And so you basically turned inside like many of us do. And you just, like I said, bull your way through it, which is amazing giving, given what you had to experience um, after that, that particular incident and to, to go on and do what you had to do and, and to command a combat arms um, uh, <laughs> unit um, is fascinating to me. Um, so, Please, if, if there's anything else you want to say about that, please do. And then I would love for you to share with the audience. And but this additional context is really helpful. Is now you've now you you so you were able to somehow manage your way through that 20 year career and achieve you know exemplary um, uh, accomplishments. Um, but now you're facing this these major transitions and you're having some challenges please share with us how you kind of worked your way through that. Cause I think that could be, again, really instructive for all of us. You know, I think at the end of the day, one of the best advice I ever got was when I was a brand new second Lieutenant, my first company commander said, Olivia, stay in the army as long as it's fun. And the majority of my career, it was fun. Despite, you know, these moments that I've told you that were negative for the most part, it was fun. And, and I think it was fun for me because again, my mind suppressed a lot of these negative parts and I was married at the time. i spent majority of my career up until the very end. I was married. You know, I spent my whole 20 years with the person that I loved and we, you know, had an adventure together. I spent, you know, 20 years developing my young adult life and I was doing what I thought was fun. And, being part of this massive tribe, like being whoa, for a lack of better words, right? Like I, I was, yes, I deployed three times, but I was part of something bigger than myself and doing something amazing. Even though, you know, my parents don't want to hear this, but yeah, you know, I had a lot of close calls with death, but I was so, you know, grateful that I got to come home. Um, and that every single time, gave me a new appreciation of the life that I got to live. And, and I, I just didn't know what else I, I was going to do with my life. Um, my dad had served in the army. So I was second generation. And what else was I going to do? What else was going to be more fulfilling than being an army officer? So fast forward, here I am at the end of my career. And the reason why I decided to 
put it all up was there came a point in my life that I wanted to be a mom. And that was a journey in itself. I had some fertility issues and I finally had a child and my oldest is a girl and she's now nine. And then, you know, a few years later I had a son and he's now five. And when my son was about 12 months old, 12, 14 months old, I got a call from, you know, branch manager and saying, Hey, Liv, it's time to PCS. And I will be honest at that time, my husband and I had been very lucky where we had been able to work both of our careers, where we have been able to work with our branch managers to keep each other together. We've never been separated and we've been able to get almost every assignment that we've ever wanted, which is not something that a lot of married couples can say. We have been fortunate. And branch manager said, it's time for you to go. And we had been in the DC area for a few years. And he called me and says, you got an option, Korea or Egypt? And I was like, uh, neither. Oh, Jesus. And he said, Korea or Egypt? And I said, and I'm looking at my son. And I said, are any one of those a company? He said, nope. And I said, eh, neither. And I'm crying and I'm still nursing my son. And he, and I said, I don't want either. This is one of the reasons why I'm an older mom. I'm 44. You know, you can do the math. I had kids very late for that reason. And I know that moms have had kids and they've deployed hats off to them. Like, I can't imagine doing that. I knew that I couldn't handle that. And that's why I didn't have kids at the company grade level because I knew I couldn't handle that. And so I'm a, I'm a field grade officer as a mom. And I knew in that moment that, nope, I'm not going to continue my career and still be a mom. Like I just, this is, this is gutting me right now, but I know I had to finish out because I've only got, you know, a couple years left. And so we prayed about it. And my, at that time, my husband and I, we talked about it. What assignment am I going to pick? And we, we opted for Korea based on the time zone differences. I'm Korean and English. I have extended family in Korea and it just made sense. You know, my mom could bring the kids over. She could go visit family. She knows the language. It just, it seemed like the better option. So I said, let's do Korea and branch manager screwed up. He promised me Korea and he screwed up and gave the assignment to somebody else. Oh my God. <laughs> and, um, and I knew he screwed up because he was avoiding me for a couple of weeks because my RFO never came, came down. And, um, Finally, I got a hold of him and he said, I kind of screwed up. I said, yeah, you think? Um, and, he, and I did not want Egypt. It was a, to the Sinai Peninsula. And the assignment that I was supposed to get, it was actually uh, not a very good assignment. In fact, the assignment I would have gotten was um, that building I would have worked. It actually ended up getting bombed that mm. same year. Um, and so I just, I just, I didn't, I did not want to be separated from my family. I just knew that that wasn't what I wanted. And something just told me that, that's not what my family needed. And I just knew that after this job, I'm done. There's nothing that the army can give me. They can make me chief of staff of the army. And I would not take it that my career is done. I, I, I am done, done. And uh, in the end, they ended up giving me soldier for life. And they, and the funny part was the, the army thought, Hey, we're giving you a major's position. And uh, we're killing your career. So even if you decide that you want to stay in, you, you've killed your career. And I said, you could stick me in a dungeon licking stamps. I don't care. 
I am so done because I want my family. I just want 20 years. You can stick me in a dungeon. I am so done. But Olivia got the last laugh because Soldier for Life ended up putting me so far ahead in the game after the army that it was the best thing that the army could have done for me. But here I am at the end of my game, I'm transitioning and everything started to fall apart. And that is where we are, right? So this is a discussion about the mental health piece. I am now preparing to exit the army and all those things that I talked about that I didn't deal with are now coming ahead. And right now, so I've been divorced a little over a year and my ex-husband and I are, we are, we are great friends. And I know a lot of people can't say that, you know, we are amical. We, we co-parent, we have joint custody of our kids. And I, I don't think that even for him, he knew that this divorce was coming. I, I literally, for both of us, we woke up and we just realized that our love story just no longer worked. And it was unexpected for both of us. And that took both of us by surprise. And when neither one of you are expecting it, and it, that 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 hurts. And that is traumatic, especially when you think that this next part of your life that you've been planning for 20 years, when you have this idea of what your life is going to be, all of a sudden just falls apart. Every plan, like I said, right? You plan 24 months out, you go to tap, go early, go often. We had all these dreams, all these aspirations of what our entire life was going to be. All of those ideas, all those dreams just poof, just went away. And everything that uh, we had been working towards just literally crumbled. The person that I had built my life with, the person that I grew up my whole young adult life with, that man was no longer there. He had packed his bags and our my married life was no longer. And I had to come to that reality. And, and I say that as if like that was just this one, you know, one day event, but it wasn't, it, it took a series of months. And if anyone who's gone through a divorce can attest to, that is not an easy process. And, you know, that's very traumatic for not only for you and your, your spouse, but also for your kids and having to answer that and having to work through that, especially when your kids are young and having to explain what that is. And, and that's hard, right? Watching your kids, you know, break from that and trying to explain that. Um, and, and that, you know, broke me in a lot of ways. And I literally fell apart. Um, and I, I wasn't functioning at all, at, at all. Um, you know, behind those, those, those doors, there is my room. I spent many days in that room not moving, not eating, not sleeping, not drinking. When I say I wasn't functioning, I wasn't functioning. Um, and I'm in media, right? I'm a public affairs officer and I put on a really good face. You know, I was still putting on doing calls with Soldier for Life. I was still doing things. And a lot of people didn't realize how my life was falling apart. And it finally got to the point where I couldn't, coherently put a sentence together. I was doing a brief 
to my boss on a Friday afternoon. And literally in the middle of it, I stuttered and couldn't even talk. And it was in that moment that I think everyone realized something had happened. I lost 15 pounds in two weeks. My hair fell out in chunks. My face looked like I was a teenager again. I had massive acne. Um, I There are moments of like chunks of memory that I, I have lost um, that, it, you know, like I still deal with some memory loss. Like there are times that, you know, there's coherency that I'm like, huh? <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, a lot of people are like, you look amazing. Like, sure. Like, it's great. You know, I, that the backside of it is that, yeah, I lost this weight, but, and people are like, you know, what's your, what's your secret? What's your weight loss secret? I'm like, you don't want my weight loss secret. Right. Um, because the way I got there wasn't healthy. Um, and when I was going through that before that point, I did not understand mental health. I did not understand depression and I did not understand suicide before it never, I never understood it before. To me, it was how can someone be so sad and want to end their life? Why would anybody want to miss out on life? Why would anybody want to miss out and not be there for, for the people that they love? That was always my thought process. How selfish would it be? And then I went there myself. And it's when you go there yourself that you understand. It's not that you're being selfish. It's that you think you're doing a service for them. Mm. You think that you are helping the ones that you love by removing yourself. You think that you're such a burden for them. You think it would be so much easier if you're not there. That you've messed up so bad, that you are not lovable, that you've screwed up, that your shame is too great, that your sins are too great, that if they found out or whatever it is that you've done, if you weren't there, if they didn't have to deal with it, it would be so much easier. And if you remove yourself from that equation, it would be so much easier. Because here's the thing. The Army taught me how to be an amazing planner, right? I'm a staff officer. I've been doing that for 20 years. And I'm very good at that. I've been very good at planning. I'm detail-oriented. I'm tenacious. In fact, General Funk always says that. Look up tenacity in the dictionary and Olivia would be right next to it her name would be right next to it and I'm very good at what I do the army says find a problem fix the problem remove the problem it's what we do and in my head I'm the problem so you fix the problem and remove the problem it's how I thought and so what does a planner do start planning. And that's what I did. I started to plan my suicide and I had planned it to the T on how I was going to do it, when I was going to do it and what would be the most effective way of doing it. And what would be the, you know, most convenient way of removing myself where my family didn't have to deal with. 
And I realized that when I needed to get help, I realized that I knew some resources. Uttering the word I needed help was the hardest thing to say. It was literally the hardest things. Those words were the hardest for me to say. Here I am, a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army, working at U.S. Army Soldier for Life. I knew hundreds of organizations, and they knew me. I had them at my fingertips. And I started going through my Rolodex of resources and contacting them, saying I needed help. They couldn't help me. And it's not that they didn't want to help me. They couldn't. They were tapped out. I mean, just overstressed with yes. other patients. Yes. Wow. And their responses were, I would love to help you, Olivia. Maybe in six months, but honestly, best case in a year. At that point, I didn't know if I had six days left. And, and I think that's where I want to pause. And this is where on the backside, once everything was said and done and once i you know got healthier and and i don't want to paint this as i'm all better right that woo i've lived to tell another day and my mental health is done because mental health is something you live with every single day i have good days and i have not so good days but when i went through help and i got therapy and and working through it when I worked through it and I look back, my passion and my platform is military mental health. What I realized is I was a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army who knew all the players in the game and I couldn't get help. How wrong is that? I don't completely understand that. I mean, you. so you're going to medical facilities in, in the military and even external facilities outside the military and, and you couldn't get the help you needed? I didn't go through um, internal agencies because the stigma, right? Okay, all right. I was calling outside agencies. Ah, uh, okay. And there just wasn't enough, right? Because it goes back to, you don't want to go to help. You don't want to call in internal because it's that stigma, right? You don't want <clears throat> your organization to know that you're crying for help. And when you go to outside agencies and they're saying, we can't help you, that further compounds the problem of not enough. And we know, you guys know, the majority of the military is not lieutenant colonels and colonels. The majority of the military sits at the E5 and below rank, right? Our military force is made up of the enlisted force, not the officers. And the truth is the enlisted force, they don't know what they don't know. I just happen to be a field grade officer who has a voice, who has an attitude, who knows better and will tell you, fuck off right? Because I have notoriety. I also have, you know, the ability and the rank to say, screw you at this point. 
in E5 and E4, they're not going to do that. And this is why we have 22 a day. And actually, I think our numbers are off. I think it's higher than that. Well, and listen, if you go between the ages of 18 and 34, it's actually 45 a day. Um, it's it's stunning. Um, and your story is stunning to me. Um, so, so let me kind of just back up for a second, if, if I could, because I think you're bringing up so many important lessons for, for our audience. First of all, let me just say this. We're all dealing with challenges, right? Um, I said this earlier. Um, and so what you're experiencing, it, there was nothing wrong with you. There was absolutely nothing wrong with you. Um, the fact that you were able to manage your way through this and bull your way through the rest of your career after experiencing what you experienced as a young officer is just absolutely stunning and phenomenal to me uh, and, and put together a, a, an extremely successful career. The fact that you're where you're at today, um, it, again, is a tribute to your inner strength and resolve um, and, and resilience, to be very frank with you, absolute resilience to face that kind of adversity and work your way through it. And that's a huge example that you're setting for all of us. I don't care what rank you were. I don't care what sex you are. I don't even care if you even wore a uniform or not. That's an incredible example of, of resilience for all of us to, to, uh, to, to recognize and, 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 and follow. Um, but the, the bottom line is there's nothing wrong with you. Right. Um, and the fact that here's the, the most important thing for me and the point I want to make to our audience is you recognize something. What Now, it, it, you suffered and you suffered tremendously, but you got to the point where you said, OK, I need help. And that is not that is not that is not a sign of weakness. And I'm saying this to people who are in uniform right now, people who are transitioning out of uniform right now, people who have transitioned out of uniform right now. That is not a sign of weakness. That is actually a sign of strength. Um, we look, you mentioned it earlier, right? You, you were part of a, a high performing team in the military. Lee men, makes this point almost every podcast that we have, right? And a team does not accomplish the levels of success by doing by individual effort. They work together as a fucking team, right? And so, um, it, it is very common for any teammate to have a, a dip in their performance, whether it's sports, whether it's the military, it's a band, it's a corporate team. And what happens is the other teammates rally around that person and, and, and build him or her up. They carry the weight because at some point in time, that person's going to carry your water and carry your weight, right? That's what high performing, highly successful, highly effective teams do. And so it's not a sign of weakness when you're not up to your high level of performance and, and the standard that you know you're capable of producing and you ask for help, th that is actually the smart thing to do. Um, and, I'm, and you did that. It is unfortunate that you got some of the responses you did, um, but I also understand why you didn't go internally, right? And again, it's the stigma that we carry around in the military that it's weakness um, as a leader, as an officer, as a non-commissioned officer, a senior non-commissioned officer, it is perceived as weakness when, when you have these kinds of challenges, when the reality it is, all of us have these challenges, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so I think the, the, poor, the important point that I hope 
our audience will take away from this is if you have trouble, first of all, if you recognize that something's not right and you are unable to manage it yourself, and you certainly should, right, if you can, but if you can't, that's okay too, then ask for help. Um, so you went to external organizations, didn't find the help. I guess the question I have for you now, Olivia, is who else recognized this? Because there had to be people around you who saw, I, I, I know that you put on a, a very strong performance for folks around you, but there's people that you know, that you work with, that are in your family. Somebody had to recognize or multiple people had to recognize something wasn't right. And did anybody at least talk to you about that? Or did you at least talk to them about that? So the truth was, I think my family didn't know what to do, right? I'm the oldest of three. And I have been the one in the family that's always taking care of everybody in the family. I'm the one that the family looks to, to, to be the one that takes care of everybody else. Like mm. when shit hits a fan, my family looks to me and like, Olivia, what are we going to do? Right. Um, my sister jokingly calls me sister mom, right. When something happens with her kid or, or something happens, she's like, what am I going to do? Like, what should I do? Like, I'm the one that's like, okay, take a breath. We're going to do this, get in the car. Right. So when I was the one falling apart, they did rally around me. They were, you know, my mom flew up. She helped take care of me. Like literally she had to sit me down in the kitchen and she force fed me, right? When she looked at how bad I was, she had to, you know, be the mom again to me, right? Like I was the little kid, but beyond that, like I, I, they were at a loss because they were falling apart for me because they didn't know what to do, Right. They didn't know how to be there for me because they were hurting. Um, and so the only way that they knew how to help me was to help take care of my kids because I couldn't function. So they made sure that my kids were being taken care of, that, you know, they were, you know, going to daycare, they would take them to daycare, they would feed them, they would do those things. But in terms of me, other than making sure that I at least, you know, had some food that day, that's what they would do. But in terms of my mental capacity, they didn't know what to do for that piece. Um, and I think, and that is pretty normal. I think when you have that conversation, when you talk to the Asian community, that is a cultural thing for the Asian community. And that's very cultural when you talk to African-American communities mental health is a very shunned topic. Like, it, I mean, it's a very shunned topic in general, but it gets very, very closed off when you go into the minority communities. It's just, it's very, very taboo. And because it's so taboo, like they don't know what to do. It's just like, you know, close your eyes, close your mouth, close your ears. We're just like, nah, it works. we're just not going to deal with it. And because they didn't know what to do, they just kind of left me alone in, well, Olivia, she's strong. You know, she's 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 a combat veteran. She's always been there. She's she's going to figure it out. Like, she's going to pull through. And I think when I didn't pull through right away, it, it, they kind of got angry. Like, they're just like, where's my daughter? Where's my sister that has figured it out, right? Like, they were just like, like it, we kind of got into a, a bit of an argument. It's like, where the fuck are you? Like, put your shit together, you know? 
And, and I think that was very hurtful. It's like, what do you mean put my shit together? Like I'm like, like literally falling apart when you like, I don't know how to put my shit together. Like, like, I don't, I don't know. Um, and I think for me, it was, um, I finally was able to get a hold of one resource. Like, I just, I think this is where tenacity comes in, right? Of just sitting at this desk and just going through number after number after number of just, I need to find somebody. I need to talk to somebody. And I finally found one person who is going to talk to me. And also faith is important to me. Um, I've leaned on faith and um, God put me in touch with the right person. She, interestingly enough, she actually used to work in the medical system, in the military medical system. And she was very well aware of how the medical system in the military worked. And so she was like, I no longer work in that system, but I know how it works. And when I told her that I was suicidal, she said, stop. She said, are you active duty? And I said, I am. She said, where are you stationed? I said, well, I'm near the Pentagon. She said, well, what MTF do you go to? I said, well, I go to typically either the Pentagon or I can go to Fort Belvoir. She said, well, go to Fort Belvoir because it's a level three. She says, she's like, how far is it? And I said, it usually takes me about 45 minutes. She's like, okay, here's my personal cell phone number. I want you to call me in 45 minutes. If you do not call me, I will call 911. And in 45 minutes, you will call me when you're standing in line from behavioral health and you will do an emergency walk-in. And when you get to behavioral health, you will call me and I want to talk to the person at the front desk and you will tell them these things. Like, uh, okay. And I did that. So I went to behavioral health and I did exactly what she said. And I got seen that day and I ended up seeing the lead at behavioral health. And I got seen that day and I got, and I got treated as a patient that day. And that started my journey. Hmm. Wow. But it just so happened that the person that I talked to that day understood the military medical system and knew what I had to do. And that is how I got put into the system. If it wasn't for her, I don't think I would have gone into the medical system. I think I would have still been pinging around or who knows what I would have done. Right. I think it's important here. Uh, Howie and I had the privilege to go through some suicide awareness training recently. And your story is reminding me a lot about this. And I just want to dispel this for the audience. Some of the myths surrounding suicide that, that you have just spoken about. One you're going that, exactly where I wanted right. to go. And I, I wanted right. you to share that message. Um, yeah. So pl yeah, pl please, this is exactly where I wanted to go. Well, it, it, Olivia, again, your story, which again, I want to thank you for being so vulnerable with us. Cause I think that there's a lot of people that can learn from this, but you know, some of the myths surrounding suicide are that those people don't want help. And the truth is almost everyone thinking about it or who goes through with it actively is looking for some form of help in the time leading up to it, um, and including you. Um, the other thing that, you know, you're both angels, but this, this person you called did was understand of, okay, I don't need to fix this on the phone. I need to get you to someone immediately that can fix it. 
um, one of the myths surrounding or at least suicide. start dealing with it right Lee at, right well, at, well, at least start addressing it one of the myths was that you know people say I'm afraid to talk about it or afraid to ask because I might have to be the person that fixes it and the truth is is that uh, it's you have to bring them to someone that knows what to do and steward that relationship and it sounds like again she knew what she was doing but she did that and, and I'll be honest with you Olivia said thank thank God she did because you're you are a tenacious, powerful, brilliant woman um, and person, and you know the world is better for having you in it, right? So thank you. No problem. I I mean it. I mean it. Look, your your story is going to save lives, right? Because um, this is a this is a catastrophic problem right now in the military and beyond. So, you know, I also think that, and how he said this, there was something in you two here that that pushed you to keep looking right and i think that that's an important thing to bring up is that something told you you weren't alone completely and that you needed to find someone you understood that that community aspect was important and so that it, it sounds like just to let you continue your story uh that was the pivotal moment for you of okay i'm gonna go do this right um and you said it perfectly earlier, you know, mental health, mental fitness is not something you can achieve, right? It, it, it You can't get it and then you have it. it. It doesn't work that way. It's like physical fitness. We say this too. You you go to the gym, you're going to get in shape. But if you stop going, you know, the result changes. Um, so it, it's a continual journey. I, I think more of us have to understand that, that this is something you have to find what works for you and move forward. But please continue the story. I just I wanted to pause there just to talk about suicide awareness for a minute because um, that's something we're pretty passionate about here. Um, you know, but please continue the story. You 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 had this phone call. She she had you go to uh, behavioral health, and it, is it is it the bottom of the mountain up there? It, it peaks and valleys from there. How did you definitely move forward from that? Peaks and valleys? Right, right, right. Seeing that day, and you know, and I'm being triaged and. You know, I'm having a discussion and she's contemplating, do I, do I commit you that day or is it outpatient? And I go through a series of questions and I was very honest with her and be, and she straight up was like, because you are honest with me and you know, there's a reason why you're a Lieutenant Colonel and because you're being dead honest with me, I'm not going to commit you. But if you feel like you need to be committed, that door is open. And so I went and saw her twice a week and then, you know, that kind of scaled back and I ended up seeing her for about six months. And she said, honestly, you're probably one of my fastest cases. Most people don't go through the steps as fast as you are. Um, there are people that take a couple of years. And she said, that is a testament to one. I think the fact that you, um, you are a military officer to that you, you know, you did go through being honest with yourself. You did the work, but also that you were committed into your healing. And, but really it's being completely vulnerable and honest with yourself. And, um, and the one thing that she did say to me that I thought was interesting. She said, you know, the moment that I met you, she said, I knew that the real you was there all along. You just had to find yourself. You just had to remember who you were, 
before all of this happened, you know, before, before who you were, before you were married, before you were an officer, that real you is buried somewhere there. And you have to get connected to that person and redefine you, your identity. And that one piece that she said to me, I think is the part that was most helpful in my healing journey. And that is the part that I tell most people when when I meet other people that are going through their transition and or divorce is reconnect with you, the person that you once were. And the best way to describe that is the little girl or the little boy that you tucked away, right? The person that you were afraid to share with everybody else, right? The person that you are afraid to share because you're afraid that people are going to laugh at. That's the person that you need to connect with because that's your true self. I'll say too that this is not a, I'll try to be critical of the military. The military, almost their job is to not let you do that. Right. Um, Now there are reasons for that. Right. Um, Some of them obvious, some of them not, but as you said, you know, we always talk about the three pillars of depression. It's loss of identity, loss of purpose, loss of community. And for you, all three of those took atomic hits, right? Would you, you'd agree with that? Um, but it was the, just the notion for you of you need to find an identity that put you on a path, right? That That's, that's what I'm gathering from what you're saying, right? Is the, the path back started with let's find that identity, right? And that will lead to purpose. It will lead to community. Is that the way the story continues? It is. And, you know, and I had help along the way, you know, that wasn't a linear line, right? Because like I said, and, you know, you reiterated mental health is something that I work at every day. Right. And redefining my purpose is part of that and so yeah you know i i had this journey of of coming out of that right the first step was not wanting to to end my life right that's the first part and being okay with living life right and being here every single day and then after that was what is my purpose right answering that question of okay, well, I'm choosing to live, then what is my purpose? If my purpose was before was this uniform and being Colonel Nunn and being part of this great bigger team, now what is my purpose? And I got to be able to answer that question, part of that question, because I got a phone call. And that phone call came from a really good friend. His name is Scott Davidson. He called me up, he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, you know, work, I guess. And he said, well, let's go to lunch. Like, okay. So he took me out to lunch and he said, have you started an LLC yet? I'm like, uh, no. He said, well, when are you? And I said, uh, I don't know. He's like, well, I got work for you. So hurry up and start it. And so that's what I did. And that's where Olivia Nunn Communications LLC came from. He's not the first person that has told me to start an LLC. I've been told when I was in Soldier for Life that I should, because 
you know, I always gave out information, you know, it was pro bono in terms of people would come and see me and I would always give out, you know, how to do things right. You know, from everything from social media to podcasting, but I had to give it for free because that's what we do in the military. Right. But they're like, why don't you do this for real and get paid for it? Because you know what you're doing and you're very good at it. But fast forward and I'm having this conversation with Scott and, you know, for those of your listeners that are wondering, like, why do I know that name? Well, Scott Davidson, you know, he is one of the co-founders of Burbiz. And oh, really? Yeah. Uh, him and um, Justin Constantine, unfortunately, who had passed away earlier this year, but he's a co-founder of Burbiz and I'm his ambassador. Hmm. And, you know, he's like, hey, let me, I got work for you. Like, I like come, you know, come be my ambassador for Burbiz and, you know, you're a storyteller and, you know, we have great things that we can do to help shape the military community. And I'm like, okay. And it was, it was a very simple conversation, but it was the fact that he reminded me of what I was good at. Right. He reminded me of like, that's right. I am damn good at what I do. And that is, I am a storyteller. I am a storyteller that shares and shapes the story of the military community. And I do that effectively through podcasting, branding, social media, media, you name it, right? And that is why I created my LLC. He just reminded me of, that's what I do. I love community engagement. That's why I was really good at being a public affairs officer for Soldier for Life. In fact, If you had met me when I was a lieutenant colonel at Soldier for Life and people asked me, what do you want to do when you get out? I always said this. I would love for a company to hire me to do what I was doing for Soldier for Life, but for their company. In fact, I still would love that. So if any companies that's listening, <laughs> kind of like my plug, that's what I would love to do. I would love to work for a company where I run their community engagement on behalf of their company to engage on behalf of that company for them to do what is needed to engage for them into the military community and on their partnership side, right? There's so much that can be done. Everything from how do we chase after the conversation of mental health? How do we change that narrative? How do we change the policies that are behind that, right? The fastest growing group right now is the military sector, right? Those that are coming out, they're the ones that are opening the businesses. In fact, the section within that military section is women. They are the fastest growing segment by far. What are we doing to engage that population? And at the same time, it is also the largest population that is dealing with mental health. And we talk about mental health all the time, but yet what are we really doing to move the needle to change that? And there are companies that want to do good because philanthropy is such a big part of their organization. So why not do something for a community that gives so much to to our nation, which is the military? So put your money where your mouth is. Let's move the needle and do something. Let's change the narrative. Let's change the policies. Let's put resources towards that. And it's not just the soldiers and the veterans. It's also the caregivers towards them. It's also the spouses. It's also the children. And when I say there's not enough resources, I'm talking about there's not enough therapy sessions. There's not enough therapists. There's not enough things for them. 
There's just not enough. And it's not just going on an active duty installation. It's also off the installation because of the stigma, because just time, right? Because we're all busy in different sections. There's a lot of places that, oh, come on, majority of military installations in the middle of nowhere. So a lot of these places are inaccessible to a lot of these families, right? The mind is a powerful organ, but yet we don't understand it. And that is the most important part of this conversation. But there's so many interesting therapies that are out there that can assist. Equine therapy, dog therapy, swimming, you name it. And I'm sure that there's organizations that are out there that are willing to assist, but it takes funding and it takes organizations that are out there that are willing to assist. So how do we merge the companies and those communities together? And that is why I'm passionate about this topic. So for me, how do I use this conversation, my notoriety and merging that? And for me, it's also as I've grown out of this transition space, you know, redeveloping who I am, you know, part of finding me, I also became a beauty pageant queen, right? It was defining me and because it's the peaks and valleys, right? Some days are good, some days are bad. It was taking a chance on me. And one of the taking the chance on me was, okay, let me go figure out how to be a beauty pageant queen. And being very terrified of walking out on stage. And I did. But that crown, while many see it just, oh, it's just a beauty crown. It's not. It is mm. a conversation starter of, why are you in a beauty pageant? Why did you do that? What is that crown? And what is your platform? And I get to have this amazing conversation about military mental health. So, Olivia, there is, um, first of all, Again, I want to reiterate what Lee said. Thank you, number one, for being so transparent and vulnerable. Um, amazing. Ab absolutely amazing. And and I, I want to go back to a couple things that, that you reminded me of. And, and Lee, bear with me here. But the first thing I want to go back is the the conversation around identity. Because I think what you what you mentioned there is such an important lesson to bring back out to the top of the conversation. Um, and it reminds me of two things. One is uh, in, in my research and study, um, many of you may not recognize this name, I'm, so I'm gonna date myself, but one of the, one cl clearly one of the greatest of all time professional soccer players was a, was a, was a guy from Brazil, his name was Pele. Um, and he is hands down, was to my, to my, in my opinion, the best soccer player in the world of all time. And the reason, one of the reasons he attributes his ability to perform at such a high level was he would go to the soccer stadium two hours before a game started. He would find himself a secluded spot somewhere in the stadium. He would lay down and he would envision being a child again, playing soccer for the first time on the beaches of Brazil um, and having fun. And that's how he started to mentally prepare himself for every game that he played. So he reconnected himself with his childhood identity of learning how to play soccer and how much 
innate joy he got from that those moments. And that's how he started to mentally prepare himself for every game he played um, as a professional. And that's why he performed so well. Um, and, and then I'm also reminded of uh, Brad Thomas Lee, right? Um, the, the thing that sticks with me about the interview, so those of you who have listened to his interview, or those of you who haven't listened to his interview, Brad Thomas served literally the exact amount of 20 years down to the second that he had to serve to, to retire. Um, he was a, a he served as initially started in the Ranger Regiment as an inf infantry uh, uh, non-commissioned uh, soldier and then served the majority of his career as a Delta Force operator, um, a trained killer by every definition of the word. Um, one of the things that that really stuck with me about Brad, though, was that uh, and he said this in our interview was he had an identity as a musician prior to going into, into uniform. And although he gave, I'm going to say, roughly 90% of his new identity to the military, he retained about 10% of what Brad was before he went in uniform and never gave that up. And so when, he, and, and he knew when 20 years was up, he was out, um, he was going to do other things, but he was going to go back to being a musician. Um, and 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 started a, a rock band of a veteran rock band that performs to this day. Um, so Brad was able to, unlike many of us, to to protect a portion of his pre-military identity. And so when he transitioned out, he went right back and was able to have a very successful and a very effective transition. Not all of us are going to be able to do that. But the lesson learned from that is, and and Olivia just beautifully shared her story was that what helped her get to where she is today was she she got the advice and was strong enough to reconnect with her identity as a young Olivia right and and that is what's helping her manage the challenges she has to this day and I think we can all learn from that right so um and we said this multiple times and, it, and I don't think it ever we can never not get value out of saying it is when we're in uniform, we are part of a tribe. We're part of a community. When we're in uniform, we have a sense of purpose, right? Everybody, I don't give a fuck if you're a private or if you're a four-star general, your career is going to come to an end. And so the ones who succeed most effectively are the ones who can as quickly as possible Maybe even before they get out of uniform, they start finding another sense of purpose that's going to replace the military sense of purpose. And they find another community or multiple communities that are going to replace the military community they're a part of. And they, re not even reestablish, but reconnect with the identity of who they were before they were in uniform. And they're not solely dependent on, on that. And, and Lee, you're exactly right. The, mil the military is it, it's designed to break you down and build you back up to be the person you need to be to fight the nation's wars. That's the reason they exist. And the whole military structure is designed to do that, right? So it's not anybody's fault that you identify with, with your time in uniform. The question is, how much longer will you continue to identify 
when you're out of uniform? And how quickly will you replace that sense of purpose? How quickly will you replace that sense of community? And how quickly will you reconnect with who you were before you were in uniform or who you have evolved to after being in uniform? It doesn't matter. You just got to find it, right? And I think those are really important lessons for everyone in our audience to, to understand who's about to, is going through, or at some point will go through this process. And for those of you who, um, those of you who are around others who are struggling with this, I think the lesson for you is, look, it's okay to talk to someone who's struggling. It's okay to have the tough conversation conversation. In fact, it's not okay. It's it's imperative that you do. It's imperative that you dig down deep and you find the courage to have that tough conversation because you literally, you literally may save that person's life, right? And God help you if you shy away from it, if you avoid it, if you, if you are afraid of it, and then we lose that person. And then you're going to carry that fucking guilt with you for how long in your life? Right. And I know this is hard. I know what I'm saying right now is really hard. I get it. But how much do you care about the people around you who are struggling? How much do you want to help the people around you who are struggling? And you may not know what to do. And if you don't, that's okay. Then talk to someone who does. Right. You don't have to figure this out yourself. Go find someone who does know what to do, bring them into the conversation. You know, talk to the person who's struggling and make sure that they, they want help. And they're open to help. Have that tough conversation. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to them, right? And I understand that what I'm saying right now is really, really hard. Many people will feel very uncomfortable having that, having those conversations. But what's the alternative? Don't do anything. Don't take any action. Just hope that it's going to fucking go away. That's why we have, we're losing 22 people a day. Or again, if you look at the population of 18 to 34, 45 people a day, we have to start having these conversations. We have to start digging in. We have to start taking some action. And we have to do other things that are going to bring the level of mental fitness and teaching people how to deal with the struggles they're dealing with. This is hard work, but we have to do it. Otherwise, nothing's going to freaking change. So I know I just ran it here a little bit and I apologize for that, but there's just so many There's important lot of things passion. that came out of this conversation. And Livia, I'll tell you, if, if I just want to give you a, a freaking virtual hug right now, because um, I think you're amazing. I really do. Um, uh, and it's not because I, I just, the, the strength and, and the, the resilience that you have shown is such an example for all of us to model. Um, and the lessons we can we can pull out of the experience that you went through and are going through right now, I think are critical for all of us. And um, look, we had other questions that we were going to ask. Um, we've already gone probably way longer than 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 um, than not that I wanted to because I never want to stop a good conversation. I'm just going to be respectful of your time. Um, but I will tell you this, when we, when we, when we stop hitting record here, or we, we, when Lee closes this out, we are going to have that conversation about how you can help us. And I'm, when I say us, I'm talking about Pivotal Moments Media, and I'm talking about the ETS sponsorship program, because I think you could be an incredibly valuable asset 
um, for, for both those organizations. And I definitely want to have that conversation with you. Just not going to do it on camera. <laughs> but um, listen, I, I want to thank you. Well, first of all, is there anything else that you want to say? Um, is there anything else you feel that that um, that needs to come out? Because um, I don't want to shortchange your opportunity. Look, you, you've done you've had a chance and I appreciate the fact that we've had a chance at least to to kind of talk on the on the margin of Olivia Nunn communications and what you can offer and hopefully that message to come across loud and clear I know you're working um, you're you're working uh, you know doing marketing and branding for for s2 analytical if there's anything you want to talk about that please please feel free to do so I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you're doing today um, uh, so let, let me just turn the, 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 the microphone back over to you. Yeah, no, um, I, one, appreciate the chance to come on your show and share. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I love the fact that anytime that I have the chance to talk about mental health, you know, that is my passion. You know, it is a platform that I will never grow tired of talking. But I think the biggest piece and you know, you, you kind of hit on it is we have to change the narrative when it comes to men health, right? We have to change the narrative and we do that by breaking the silence. And when, what, it, what do I mean by breaking the silence? When we break the silence by having that conversation, it opens the space for others to share their story. And every story is different, right? My story about mental health is going to be different from someone else's. And that's why it's important that each one of us shares your story. And when you share that story, it gives breath for someone to resonate with you and say, you know what, I can resonate with you because I've been there. Some people suffer from the question of why me? Why am I the survivor of this experience? Why, why is it that I lost all my buddies in that traumatic experience, but I got to come home and that's what they are left with. And that's what they suffer. And those are their demons or um, you know, they're dealing with moral injury. You know, they were forced to do a lot of things downrange and that haunts them because they were asked to defend our nation. War is is ugly, right? At the end of the day, we're asking you to do some things that are that are ugly and it leaves a sticky residue. And that stays with you, right? Those demons come to haunt you in the quiet of the night. And by sharing your story, someone's going to resonate with you. And like I said, you know, I've only shared one story of mine. I have other stories that I haven't shared yet, you know, that haunt me. You know, my partner, you know, you, you've you spoken to him, Topaz Navarro. He can tell you, right? I have demons that come and haunt me. And when you share those stories, it gives space for others and maybe by sharing those stories and maybe by sharing that space, we can help get after those numbers, the 45, the 22, because <clears throat> what we want to do is drive that down to zero. Well, and I'll tell you the other thing it does too, Olivia, and, and I, I, I'm sure your experience is this too, because I do. Um, when, when I share my story, it helps me, right? I internalize all this stuff for years. Uh, like, uh, like years, I'm 65 years old, probably for, you know, the better part of 64 years of my life, I held everything inside. 
Okay. It's not healthy to do that. So when you tell, when you're, when you finally tell your story, when you finally share um, verbally, audibly, what you're going through, it releases so much weight out of your rucksack. You know, at least for me, it does. I, I, I'm assuming you get the same, same kind of uh, feeling that it's, it's actually, that's actually therapy for you as well. At least it is for me. So not only are you helping others in creating space, which is a unbelievably important point you just made. Um, I think it helps, it helps us individually who are dealing with these demons that the more we're comfortable and willing to share what we're feeling and going through, it releases so much fucking stress and so much pressure that I'm I'm a different person now than I was a year ago, than I was 18 months ago. Lee will tell you that, right? Um, it's uncomfortable for people around me because I'm different from what they're used to. And they may get embarrassed by it, but I really don't give a shit because it's not about them. It's about, in, in this case, I'm going to be very, very, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Lee? I'm, I'm going to be thinking about me right now because- yeah. It, you know, it's, you're not being selfish by doing that. Yeah, that's, so that, that's th this I, will be yeah. one time in my life where I'm going to choose to be selfish and I'm going to take care of me. I, I don't think it's selfish. I know what you're saying. I, I know people around me and I'm sure people around you too, Olivia, may get a little bit uncomfortable or maybe a lot uncomfortable when, when you talk about some of this stuff. But you know what? That's not important. What's important is how does it help you? And for those in our audience, how can that help you? Well, yeah. How <clears throat> I'll say this, and then I want to give Olivia the final word here too. Look, we talk all the time about your team, your teammates, and yourself, right? And that you can't operate without all three. But if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of your teammates and you can't take care of your team. Absolutely. That's why I said it's not selfish. It, it's a necessity. Olivia, the only thing I wanted to say to you is this. And actually, this is to both of you. Um, something that you guys have both talked about, you're both passionate about. And this has been echoed across many episodes of this show is that part of finding your purpose was the realization of, I want to help others in my position. I want to help other veterans. You are both incredibly passionate about that. So, and, and Olivia, I do want you to talk about this for the listeners to understand that if you are feeling lost because you have left the military, I there are so many people that find peace through reversing this and saying, I want to help other veterans. I want to help other uh, soldiers, right? Uh, and that's a big part of, A, why the show exists. It's a big part of why you do what you do, correct? Yes. Right? So I just think it's important to say that. Um, also, listen, before we close, I have to do this um, just to keep it going. Uh, to, to end this on a lighter, somewhat lighter note, uh, not not to take away from anything that's going on. Every guest we have, I create a book title for. All right, and as you can imagine, uh, and it, I'm sure you have books in the works. Uh, you know, you have to be careful with these, especially with some subject matter like we had today. But you said something earlier um, that stuck with me. So this isn't a funny book title in any way. I actually think this this sums up. But you said, you know, I was being huh, and I love that. I think that there, there's something there, but I said, being her, the need for military mental health, right? Um, mm. That That is your mission. And wow. I think that there's a lot in that. It could be losing her. I don't say it as good as you guys do, but, um, or departing her, whatever you want to have it as. But hey, if Liv, it doesn't uh, take that title, I may take it for our book. Please, yeah, you know? I'm, not, I'm not giving you anything, Howie. <laughs> but no, uh, uh, Olivia, listen, uh, 
you know, I, we're recording this during Suicide Prevention Month. I don't know if, if you realize that or not. And your story not only has educated Howie and I, but the vulnerability you, you have in sharing it is strength, strength, mental strength. It is not weakness. That is the stigma that needs to be broken. And I am so thankful that you're willing to share that story because it will not just save lives. It will affect lives. It's affected me. It's affected Howie, obviously. And uh, I just want to thank you for your willingness to do that. Uh, and I also want to thank that whoever that person was that you called for, yeah, really. for helping reverse the trajectory of of the, the path you were on. Absolutely. Uh, right. So, and all the people in that scenario, but Olivia, I really do want to give you the final word. If you have anything to say about the conversation today, um, because you were fantastic. No, thank you both gentlemen for letting me come on your show. I appreciate the conversation. I had so much fun. Um, the big thing is give back, right? Give back in your time, give back in your effort, put your money where your mouth is. You know, you mentioned the foundation that I'm part of, which is the all in foundation workplay obsession. You can give back there. Um, we are a connecting resource. And another one that I'm always big into is headstrong foundation. Those two, if you, like I said, give back, you give back by checking in on your buddies, had that phone call, you know, just see where they are because that does matter. And then put your money where your mouth is five bucks, right? Instead of taking that beer for that afternoon or your latte, give back in that five bucks right. can go a long way. So thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Olivia. I mean, then look, if you received as much value from our time today as we did. Uh, make sure you share this episode with a friend. Uh, like and subscribe. Leave us a review uh, on whichever podcast platform you listen to. Please follow Olivia Nunn. As she said, she's well established on the internet. I had a fun time going down that rabbit hole last night across uh, every social media network, but uh, absolutely somebody worth worth following and listening to. Um, also, if you'd like to contact us directly with a question, a comment, a guest recommendation, if you need someone to speak to about your transition, mental struggles, experience, even suicide, please contact us. Email us at howie at pivotalmomentsmedia.com or DM us directly on social media on the Charlie Mike channels. We would love to hear from you if, if you need. Um, finally, make sure to check out pivotalmomentsmedia.com and all of our channels that focus on overcoming adversity uh, in different ways in sports, how inspirational women inspire other women. We've heard one today, building mental fitness in the workplace, how uh, musical artists, painting artists, artists of all types can overcome adversity and strengthen their mental fitness. Um, and of course we have our mental fitness education center, which is a great place to start if you're curious about this uh, type of content, but uh, that's going to do it for the episode for Olivia Nunn, Howie Cohen. I'm Lee Elias. Thanks so much for listening to Life After the Military. Have a wonderful day, a wonderful week, wonderful month. We'll see you next time on Life After the Military. Have a great day, everybody. 